Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're seated, please turn your Bible to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2, we'll be looking at, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. If you do need a Bible, we do have paper Bibles at the back. I encourage you to pick up a Bible, and, and I always encourage you to use a paper Bible. So we do have those in the back if you'd like, um, but maybe you might be turning over there in your digital Bible. Um, Titus, and if you're looking for Titus, not only can you find it in your table of contents, but you could just go to the back and flip back a little bit. Keep attention to every page, and you'll find it. As I said before, mine takes up two pages. Titus 2, and today we'll be looking at verses 11 and 12. Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. I know I just had you sit, but now that you've found it in your Bible, now that it's up on the screen, we're going to stand together and let's read together. Or let me, let me read the Word of God, the Word of God to you this morning. Uh, come inspired from the inspired and errant uh, Word of God to you today, that you may know your God and what he has done. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. This is the word of God for you today. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Have you ever been stuck? Have you ever been stuck in life? Today, I was actually counting on it for one of my kids. Um, every morning um, before church, I, I, changed, I have two babies who need change of clothes and get dressed and diaper changes. I was kind of counting on one of my kids getting stuck today uh, because I was working on one, and then I had to go to the other, and I gave something, you know, one of them something to do. And it was to put his shoes on. But they were complicated shoes. They weren't Crocs and they weren't sandals today. It was tie-up shoes. And they were dress shoes. And so they were hard to put on. And so it was interesting just watching him there as I was changing the other one, just trying to put these shoes on and being more and more frustrated. More and more frustrated. I can't put them on. Daddy, help. I'm like, I'll be there in just a minute. Keep working on it. Daddy, help. And then finally he just gave up. And I said, I'll get there in a minute. And I went over there and helped to put his, put his shoes on. But he was stuck. He couldn't put it on his shoes, and he was frustrated. Maybe you've sometimes felt that, like that in your Christian life. You know, I can't really make the advance, the improvement that I, I want to do, and I just get frustrated. I just want to give up. I was looking on b- being stuck. This is the illustration I was intending to use until that happened this morning. But it was back in 2018, there in July of 2018, an entire children's soccer team with their coach got stuck in a cave in the nation of Thailand. You may remember this story. Actually, it just came out as a, as a movie on Amazon Prime recently. Um, but I was remembering this rescue, the rescue of the, of the Tam Luong Cave Rescue. 
And these 12 boys and their coach, you know, they were celebrating a hard day of practice, and they did what a lot of boys do on that day as they went into a, a cave. They go cave exploring. You know, it's cool in there. Um, it's a lot of fun. And, and this went into as boys that age would do. All the boys were 11 to 16 years old. Their coach was 25, and they thought it would be okay. But the rain came early that year. Usually it was a safe time to do it, but the rain came early. And because the rain came early, it began to flood up that cave. And it flooded the entrance, so they could no longer leave. Maybe planning to wait it out. The rain kept coming, so it pushed them farther and farther into that cave. Eventually, they were, so, they were four kilometers in the cave, which is about two and a half miles, into that cave just to find a dry place in order to stay for a while. I believe they were there at least ten days before the first rescuer found uh, those, those boys. But during this time, you know, the whole world was focused on these boys. You know, they couldn't get out by themselves. They had two and a half miles to go, and a lot of it was submerged completely underwater. So the, many uh, nations of the world arranged uh, military, helped to ex- arrange a military-like extraction. Um, they had to uh, scuba dive underwater through caves. Uh, they had to go these two and a half miles in order to rescue them. And it really was a race against time. There was no food that was in the cave. More rain was coming and threatened to fill up the cave all the way. And these 13 young lives were about ready to be, to be lost. So deep sea divers got involved, the military of many nations. They brought in high-powered pumps. And they had to get their way to these 13 boys to get them out. And the boys, in the end, didn't know how to use scuba gear, so they needed a way out, go a mile, at least somewhat around a mile, underwater. Just get 13 young men out. It was tense. They needed rescue. You know, so we can think about times that we get stuck. Whether it's my son in his shoe, whether these boys in there, where we need a way forward. We can get spiritually stuck. And what we want to look at is a way of spiritual progress today. Because how is it that people turn their lives around? How is it people move forward in their lives? How do we find help? And oftentimes, the best answer is given is to try harder. Try harder and you're going to work it out. Start something new. Now, what is the Bible's answer? We want to look at that today when it comes to spiritual growth. Because just like the boys in the cave or my son with his shoe is they needed a rescue. And the key to getting unstuck is to go to the rescuer, to go to Jesus Not just to try harder, but to surrender to the love of Jesus. And that's because sometimes when we try harder, we can just sink deeper and deeper into despair or deeper and deeper into our problems if we try harder and our decisions are not grounded in God's word. Now, the letter of Titus was written to help get a number of churches started on the island of Crete. Crete was known throughout the Roman Empire for its immorality. Uh, they celebrated violence and deceit and laziness. And all of those things were encouraged by the spread of Jewish myths. And it says the commands of those who disobey the truth. Worldly wisdom, good ideas, self-help uh, philosophy, and Jewish myths. Those things would spread, in fact, uh, this violence, deceit, and laziness that was going on the island. But the church was supposed to be different. We looked at a, a set of qualities for God's people last week. If you look at verses 1 through 10, chapter 2, 1 through 10, you'd see qualities, qualities for older men, older women, uh, younger women, younger men, for the, Titus himself as a pastor, for the slaves of the area, you know, really the workers of the land. They were supposed to be different. 
How is it they would develop those qualities and not get discouraged when they're slow in developing them? See, Jewish myths and the human commands tended to support that hedonistic lifestyle. And they needed something else to bring those qualities to bear. And what they needed, what we see in our passage, is they needed grace. They needed grace, grace from a rescuer. That's because the Cretans couldn't just change by willpower. They couldn't change by fixing their lives or just adding in new habits. They needed a different power. They needed the power of God, which was given to them in the gospel of grace. I mean, why would they change long-term habits? Why would they change long-term motivations? Why would they set aside their sinful lifestyles when they were so comfortable with them? Why would they sacrifice themselves and love others and sacrifice themselves for them? Why would they make the change? And the answer is grace. Grace is the reason they would. We see that in verse 11. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And he builds his argument, the rest of the argument from this point, the grace of God has appeared. That's because only the grace of God has the power to change a life. Only the grace of God has that power, can inspire that change. Only the grace of God has the power to rescue us from the guilt and the power of sin. It's not always what we think is necessary to change, but it's exactly what we need, especially when we don't want to change. So the believer on the island of Crete now has a description of what they were supposed to act like, but what it seems like he's getting to them as as he focuses on grace is that that the gospel and their Christian faith is not just an add-on in their lives. It's not something they can clean up their lives and then add on the gospel. It's not like they can just keep doing whatever they want to do and just add on the gospel so they can feel good about themselves. Oh, keep acting the way you want. Do the things you please. You don't really need to change. You can, you know, just remember all the sin is gone. Don't worry about those things. But no, he's getting to a point where he's going to go is they needed to see that a gospel would change their lives. Their lives needed to be changed, and it was the power in order for it to happen. So not only is it the power to do it, but it's a power that will have its effect in the lives of God's people. They should never be the same again. They couldn't believe that they wouldn't change. They couldn't justify selfish or sinful behavior. And they couldn't believe that they were, but also, they had to understand they were not responsible for change by themselves. So they needed to change, but only the grace of God could change it. And that's the same with us. Like, there's a change that's needed. We need to keep growing. We call that progressive sanctification, progressive growth in Christ. And how does that happen? It's by the grace of God. Now, the devil himself would love for you to be stuck. The devil would love for you to be selfish. The devil would love for you to think that you can't change. He wants you to believe that change doesn't matter. He wants you to waste your life. He doesn't want you to engage in others' lives. He doesn't want you to have a successful marriage. I mean, he wants to steal away from the glory of God. But there's a power that defeats that. And that's the grace of God. Grace changes us. Jesus changes us. Now, jump down to verse 14. You know, we start, we see the beginning. The grace of God has appeared. At the end, what is God's goal? We see this, that he wants to create a people of his very own zealous for good deeds. 
zealous for good deeds, full of good deeds, uh, deeds that show up in relationships, deeds that show up in our work, uh, deeds that show up in our churches, deeds that show up in our government, in our community, all around, zealous for good deeds, showing love to those who are in need. It's not just that we do them, we're zealous for them, right? That's a change of heart. There's a passion, a zeal for doing what's good. I don't know if that's a, that's a word that describes most of us. I mean, are you zealous for good deeds? And that's what God wants in us. And how does that come? It comes by grace. And so if we see weakness here, what do we need? We need to be transformed by that grace. There's a connection from the beginning, the grace of God appearing and the ending of our passage of being zealous for good works. So if you feel stuck, stuck in your past, stuck in your sin, stuck in sinful patterns, stuck in unbelieving patterns, stuck without good deeds, stuck with shame, I mean, there is a remedy, and it's in grace. Grace. And that's what we're gonna look at today, that precious, precious remedy. That's because if you don't wanna stay the way you are, you're gonna go deeper in the grace of Jesus Christ. All right, so let's look at this in our three points. You can see them inside of your bulletin. The first one is that grace is God's power to forgive past sin. We see this in verse 11 again, just to read it again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So let's just look at a couple things out of the passage. The first thing is we see the grace of God has appeared. That appearing has changed everything. The Greek word for that is epiphany. Epiphany, it's a, it's a reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in the, in the liturgical church calendar, the, the, the season of Epiphany is between Christmas and, and um, July, or January 6th, the 12 days after Christmas, right? Because Jesus has come. He's appeared. And Jesus is the grace of God given to the world. Now, if we understand grace, what, what is that? Grace is God's unmerited, his undeserved favor, his love. That's where Jesus comes in. Jesus Christ, he came and he brought salvation, verse 11 tells us. Freedom from sin, freedom from guilt. That God, those who believe in Jesus Christ, God no longer judges them in their sin. It's also freedom from the power of sin. We can obey and serve God. Our salvation is our freedom from the curse of this sinful world. It's a promise uh, that God will set us free from the evils of the world, from his suffering and his death. You know, there's a salvation. Now we see, if we look at this, that that salvation is for all people. Notice it says that. It has brought salvation for all people. It's all ethnic groups. For all people, no matter what economic uh, status that they're in, they all need it, every group. And no matter how bad they've been, no matter the bad things they've done, it is for sinners like you and for me. The grace of God is appeared bringing salvation for all kinds of people. That's what Jesus came to do, to deal with our past sins. He came to take away our past sins. And if he didn't do that, we would not be able to move forward. That's because we loved our sins. We lived in rebellion against God. We thought we should create our own way of righteousness. We wanted our own way of acceptance before God and others, and this sets up a barrier between us and God. And that's what Jesus came to take away. Look at verse 14. Jump back down to verse 14. It tells us what he did. When this grace of God appeared, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. We're guilty of lawless behavior. We're guilty of breaking God's laws, and we were condemned for that. 
We were condemned because of what, what we had done. Our separation from God was a separation from his power. The Bible calls that enmity. There was conflict. There was a war, Romans chapter 5 tells us, and that enmity between us and God leaves us without good deeds. Not only that, but we had the shame and guilt of sin. The things that we've done in the past can leave us with such shame, can't they? We become afraid of God, hiding ourselves from him, afraid to be honest about our sins with God and with others, afraid the stains of our past would keep us from being accepted by God. Instead of coming openly to him, we hide ourselves from him and we stay away from his power. But that's exactly what Jesus came to deal with. Romans 5.1 tells us how he dealt with it. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This word justified or, or justification means you're accepted by God and that he sees no fault with you because of faith, because of what God did in Jesus you're without blemish in his eyes, and as a result, there's peace. God does not have a problem with you. Does not have a problem with that sin. We're not at war with him because he's dealt with it in Jesus Christ. The great hymn says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. That's what Jesus did. He bore my shame. He bore my scoffing against God. He was condemned in my place. He died for sin. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, all your sins are placed upon him. He bears it all, is taken off of you, and then you have a relationship with your creator. You have a relationship with your redeemer. And that justified person is forgiven and free and has access to the entire power of God. Access to God. Access to his power because of that forgiving grace. Sacrifice had to be made. As I was learning about this cave rescue, which I mentioned at the beginning, uh, one of the things they had to do was to try to get as much water away from this cave that it wouldn't fill up uh, too quickly, that they would have time to rescue these boys. And so they put these high-powered pumps up to, the, up to this cave, and they began draining the water out and, and from the surrounding river so it would not go into that cave, just to give a little bit more time. And they were successful it was successful, and it did give some more time, but there was a downside to it. All the farmland downtown, or downstream, all that farmland downstream uh, from them, they all got flooded. Farmers lost, you know, summer full of, of crops. They paid a high price for the salvation and the saving of those 13 souls. We remember that when Jesus died for us, he paid a great price. He took our foolishness, he took our sin, he took our evil upon himself. He had to pay. He was happy to do it, to redeem us as his own people. The lives of his people was worth it to him. To create a people zealous for good works, that's, that's his goal and his aim, and that's what he did in order to see that happen. So how do we see the power to change? We need to be reconciled with God. We need to know that he loves us and that he will help us in our times of need. And it, and it should blow us away. I mean, how would God have such compassion and love to forgive us of our sin? He's holy, and he's righteous, and we've done so much wrong, and yet he has chosen to forgive. There's a number of quotes in the sidebars in your bulletin. Uh, one of them is from Thomas Chalmers. Thomas Chalmers wrote a book. You can see the title of it in the sidebars, but it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, right? So the idea is, like, you have a lot of affections in your life, things that you like, right? And some are sinful, right? 
And so there's, but there's an expulsive power which can force that out, right? What is that power which forces one love out and, and allows another one to be cultivated? And what Thomas Chalmers focused on is the grace of God that's in Jesus Christ. Because that's what we need. We need new loves, new affections which push out the old ones. And he says this, In a word, if the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object is to fasten it in a positive love to another, then it is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing the mental eye, the worth and excellence of the latter, that all old things would be done away and all things are to become new. Okay, what's his point in summary? Is like the greatest way to defeat sin in your life is not just to look how hateful sin is, but to look how wonderful the Lord Jesus Christ is. Love him, know his grace, know the wonder of what he's done inside of your life, and that will have the greatest power forcing and, and, and cultivating godliness in your life and indeed enforcing out old sinful patterns. Is it instantaneous? No, it's a work that, we're, that God is constantly doing inside of our lives. But that's what we do. We look constantly towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 130, verse 4, talks about this a bit. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. You know, why feared when God is forgiving? We think he'd be feared if, if um, he wasn't forgiving. But the psalmist, and we know that, wow, you know, if God has loved us like this, if he's forgiven us so much, I, mean, I want to stay there. I want to know that acceptance. I want to know that love. I mean, we don't find that kind of love often. It's natural to want to stay in it. So we're not presumptuous, but we value it. It inspires change for us. Have you received the grace of God? Do you know his love? Receive it. Know it. Seep yourself in it. See its power. Let that be the expulsive power of sin inside of your life. So that's our first thing. The second thing we want to look at is grace is God's power to overcome present sins. Let's look at verse 12. What does this grace do? Right? Verse 12 says, the grace of God training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We go to trainers for all kinds of things. We have job training. We have driver's training. We have athletic training. You know, a trainer is someone who helps us to think about how to be successful. And a good trainer is going to help us think about the things we need to stop doing and the things we need to start doing. Um, the things we just need to be focused on. And that's what grace does in our lives. It trains us. Sometimes we think that God's grace it's something that we need at the beginning of our Christian life. But after that, we just need to work really hard in order to be good. But here we're reminded that the grace of God is an ongoing, does an ongoing work inside of our life. As one person said, that grace is not just the diving board, or the gospel is not just the diving board. I mean, it is the whole swimming pool. You know, it's not just the starting point of the Christian life. I mean, it is the starting line. It is the race. It is the finish line. There's grace in all of it. Now, what does grace teach us? What does it train us? It says it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You know, you see the, the power of some of the words that are here, right? Zealous, what we saw in verse 14. And here you see the word renounce. It's not just stopping certain things. It's not just resisting sin. It's renouncing ungodly behavior. Renouncing things that God is not pleased with. Renouncing things that keep us in the way of, of delighting in our Savior. Not only should we not do it, but there's a distance that comes in our lives and from those things. 
It's not just we don't just do them. We declare them to be detestable. And some of us are playing around with detestable things that we should be renouncing. We're not being trained by grace with all the things that God has for you. It's the same thing with worldly passions. We renounce those too. Sex, power, money. We realize that none of those things are ultimately going to fill us. None of those things are going to satisfy us. As Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Renouncing those worldly passions, which we think will bring us so much happiness, but distance us from God. Something has to change in our hearts. Something changes in our perspective. And just as Thomas Chalmers says, we renounce those things because we know something better. You know, people think that, that power and sex and amusement and money, that those things are going to fill them up. It's the passion of greed and violence, of anger and vengeance, of worldly, worldly ambition. People think that those things are going to make them feel better, and they become idols. If just we worship those things just a little bit, power and money and sex and amusement, and those things, then we'll be better, then we'll be happy, we'll be less anxious. We'll have all our needs taken care of. We'll be able to have better pleasure. But those things just don't work. Those things leave us empty. Jesus Christ is the one who fills us. We live for grace. We live for Jesus. Verse 12 describes that way of life as being self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age, this life right now. Because we know that those are the things which we develop as we do it by faith, living in the Lord Jesus, that bring us closer to Christ, which help us to know his power and his pleasure. They're the joys of obedience. You know, God saved us so we could do those things. So we see the grace of God, it trains us. It trains us by re- reminding us of what God has done in Jesus. It, re- it trains us also because God sends his Holy Spirit. God sends his Holy Spirit to make us aware of sin. I mean, that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He works in our conscience to remind us that something is wrong. When we follow uh, Jesus, God promises to put his Holy Spirit to guide us. It's a promise that we have. That he dwells inside of us. And so the grace of God trains us when we do wrong. I mean, the Holy Spirit reminding us, you know, you trained someone badly. Bring upon your conscience that, you know, you're not forgiving someone. But remember how the Lord Jesus forgave you. The Holy Spirit reminding us when we're angry that, that maybe we don't need to explode here, that God has had patience with us. And because God has had patience with us, we can have patience with others. Or bring it to, to our mind that, you know, we have a part in this conflict that's going on right here. And I need to enter into it and address my own part and responsibility in that conflict. He trains us to move away from the things that are wrong. And then he trains us to move towards what's good. He reminds us of joy and obedience. So the Holy Spirit does is he directs us to do what's good. He calls us to speak in words of encouragement, to forgive others. When we're tempted to sin, he reminds us the good things, that, that, that the righteous way is a way that pleases God. That, you know, obeying God's word is always good. And, and, and the good thing is, we obey. He reminds us the pleasure of God has in our obedience. He reminds us how close God is. So God trains us, grace trains us by giving the Holy Spirit. But a third way that God trains us is through the giving of new habits. I mean, isn't that what trainers do? You know, I, I've now had three children go through driving training, and the whole point of driving training is to get new habits. You know, look over your shoulder. Always check your rearview mirrors. Um, 
You know, make sure you stop all the way at the stop sign. You know, that, that there um, are habits that developed in learning to drive. Well, there are also Christian habits, Christian habits that train us as well. You know, we have the Bible, reading the Bible, knowing it. That's something that trains us, trains not only our mind, but it also trains our hearts. We have the Lord's Day. If we come together to worship, we have the Lord's Supper. We have Christian friendship. We have a life of prayer. I mean, these are all means of grace. And as we spend time in these things, we change. They do change us. They're gifts. They are done by faith. God works in those. And to build our faith and to work in our lives. So do you want to get unstuck? Do you want to move forward? You know, take on the training of grace. If you don't see growth, obedience, joy, or usefulness, could it be that you will not let yourself be trained? That you don't listen to the word of the Holy Spirit? That you don't focus on the gospel? That you don't take on the habits he would have you to have? Let grace be your guide in thinking. Let it be your guide in decision making. All right, so let's look at the third thing here. Third, especially in verse 13, that grace is God's power to bring you to glory. It's not just the past, it's not just the present, but it's really also into the future. That's what we see in verse 13. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, the Christian life is one of hopeful endurance. We endure, we persevere because we know where we're going. We know where the end of the road is. We know the destination and the joy and the glory that's there. And we have hope. Now, hope isn't just wishful thinking for us. I mean, hope is a a joyful anticipation. It's an expectation that God is going to do the things that he said that he's going to do. Right? And what's our blessed hope that we're waiting for? It's another appearance. You see that? It's another appearing, right? This time, the Lord Jesus, as he comes in glory. As the Lord Jesus comes and he brings God's kingdom with all its fullness, he he brings into history all of its fulfillment. I mean, it is a statement about glory. It is a statement about heaven. And so our ultimate hope is not building ourselves a perfect life now. It's not building a perfect society now. Only, Only God can do those things. For us, it's not about getting that dream job or a good promotion or actually retiring. The blessed hope is not in marriage, sex, or any other dream experiences we might think we have, but our hope is in seeing Jesus face to face. That's a hope that sustains for godliness in a way that pleases God. First John 3, 2 tells us what happens when we see Jesus like this, right? We become like him. It says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared Right? Where we are now is we're loved by God, forgiven by God, brought into his family. But yet there's something which is still coming, he says. And says this. He says, there's a lot of things we don't know, right? But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself just as he himself is pure. You know, what you look at is going to steer your behavior in the here and now. Do you look forward to his return? If you do, that'll stare you now. Or do you think that his return would somehow uh, cramp your style or, or result in some sort of loss in life? You know, is your best life now or is your best life in glory? Would the return of Jesus and the arrival of heaven uh, be the fulfillment of your dreams or an interruption of your dreams? Is it such a great fulfillment that you see it as gain? I mean, how you answer that question, well, probably answer how you're living your life right now. 
Is it for the here and now, or is it for the future that Jesus brings? The passage says that we will see him in glory. I mean, that's a great hope. He doesn't come in the humility that he had in his first coming. He comes in power and fulfillment of all of God's plans and all of God's purposes, and that's the power of grace. And that motivates us. There's a future grace that we look forward to, knowing that God holds over every good deed for reward in the age to come. And so when we think that we can't possibly do another thing in service to the Lord, when we wonder if we'll succeed in doing that thing that God has called us to do, what do we do? We operate on the promise of future grace that is uncomfortable as we may feel with it as we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ will strengthen us for that very thing he's called us to do. He's promised he'll bring us to glory and he'll do what it takes to get us there. We'll wait for that blessed hope. So as Christians, we look backward with hope, but we also look forward with hope. I mean, the ultimate life is not right now. There's too much suffering. There's too much difficulty. Uh, We do get a taste of heaven as we worship, as we serve God, and that creates that longing for what is to come. All right, so that brings us back to our concluding, concluding verse again. Verse 14, right? God's goal to make a people zealous for good works. Why be zealous for good works? Because the grace of God. God's loved us. He's given us so much. We have enough of Jesus. We are full. You know, we don't need things of this world. We're accepted. We're strengthened for the fight. And we have a future. We have enough that we can look around us and we can help. I mean, that is a motivator of good work. I'm full. I, I can be full in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I'm full, then I'm enabled to go and be blessing to others. I'm not looking for the world to fill me, the people around me to fill me. I'm looking for the Lord Jesus Christ to fill me by, the, by his means of grace. Now, do you know what motivates us all too frequently towards good deeds? Guilt, right? Is it, doesn't guilt often be that big motivator um, for us? We feel guilty about some part of our lives, and then we want to do what we can to stop feeling guilty and feeling so bad about ourselves. You know, and when we look at a passage like this, we see that's not the primary motivator here, right? We, we feel guilty about how much money we have, so we give to the poor. We feel guilty for how we treat our spouse, so we try to do better. We feel guilty for not being home enough, so we buy children gifts to expunge guilt. Now, it's not to say that guilt is improper, but guilt should lead us to our Savior. Guilt is what leads us to Jesus Christ. It's, it can be a gift of God to, to show us where we've gone wrong, and godly guilt begins by confessing our sin before God, looking for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Godly guilt leads to a principled repentance. But we, don't expend, we, we do not expunge our guilt by trifle offerings that we so often offer. We live in a world that is full of people who are trying to atone for the failures of the past with guilt-ridden responses. In a response, instead of godly response of repentance and faith, they respond with sinful and wrong responses. Anger boils over while actual efforts to do good are temporary. And what that motivation of guilt ends up doing, I feel guilty about this way, right? I'm going to expunge it by just doing something simple so I can keep doing what I want. Or I'm going to expunge it this way, but what's going to happen is I'm going to create another problem over here by doing another sin in order to make myself feel better from the thing that I did before. You know, there's this effort of cycle of self-justification. And that's not a justification that comes from God. That's human. It's dangerous. It does more to destroy people than any other ideology. And I don't know if you've ever felt overwhelmed uh, by the amount of good deeds that need to be done. 
I mean, anybody ever here felt overwhelmed by the number of things I need to do and I'm just not measuring up to it? Give to the poor, adopt, foster, fight racism, share your faith, have a daily quiet time, um, fight racism. I already said that. Come to evening service, petition an abortion clinic, uh, fight childhood obesity, go on a mission trip, volunteer at a local school. I mean, all these things can be good. I mean, some of them can be really good. But it can also be so much, it just sends us in, in action. We get tired of being made feel guilty where we're just falling short. We don't know where to start. Now, maybe it's just me who feels like that sometimes. Um, but I have a feeling it's more than just me. And that's not where the passage takes us. It shows what to do with guilt. Bring it to Jesus. We find forgiveness and justification in Jesus Christ. And not by atoning for ourselves. We know his love. We, we know the awesome breadth of his love. And then out of that, we love others. We love the people around us. We do good at our work. We build friendships. We're aware of the opportunities that are around us. We, we all probably have enough in our world. If we just pay attention, then we do something about it. You know, I was just thinking about this when I was holding up the gold envelope this morning, the Deacon's Fund offering. You know, and the Deacon's Fund offering is a great way to care for those who are in need. You know, I don't know if you've thought about it, but it's just, you know, sometimes we see people on the corner and we think, you know, should I give to them? Is there a need? And I'm not saying not to or to. I can make a case either way at some future time. But one thing that our church is involved in doing is seeing we know needs that are around us. There are needs within our congregation. There are needs, you know, one person distant from our congregation that we're already involved with. You know, a chance to just be involved with what God is already doing as part of our lives is saying, you know what, I want to help others. That's one way we do it. There's so many other ways to do it, whether it's in our mission trips, whether it's in being involved in one of those lives to care groups, uh, whether it's praying for one another, um, even coming praying for expectant mothers, um, you know, building a community where we welcome others in to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or, or even it's just to look in our own neighborhood and to see what's going on around us, to know our neighbor and to talk to them about Jesus. To act on something that the Lord really puts on your heart as a matter of conviction but it's out of the overflowing grace in your life. He's already paid for your sins. And when you know that love, you know freedom, you know joy, and that flows over into good deeds. It should. If you don't see many good deeds in your life, is it because you don't know what it means to be saved by grace? Have you grasped that you're a sinner, justly deserving God's judgment? Have you grasped that you can't do anything to earn God's acceptance? That you're not loved because you're such a great person. That you're loved out of God's sheer grace. And he took away all condemnation. And he gave all grace. He gave love. He poured it out. You know, how can we not love knowing that love? How can we not do good deeds when we're so full of his love? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. God, we couldn't uh, change for ourselves we couldn't become what you had for us. We were that far into sin. We were that far into sin. But you saved us. You saved us by grace. And that grace, God, steers our lives. Let it steer our lives. There is so much power in the gospel. Help us be trained in the gospel. Help us find our hopes in that gospel. Because we want to know that power. That we will know that power that makes us zealous for good works to love our neighbor and to bring you glory. We ask you, God, for this help. In Jesus' name, amen. We do come to the Lord's Supper today.